Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. This is going to be a special episode, end of the year, New Year's episode for 2022. And we are starting off the year with a new team and slightly, potentially a new format. We'll see. So my name is Dean. You probably recognize my voice. Uh, Joining me is Winnie. Hello, this is Winnie. And we've got Catherine. Hi, I'm Catherine. And we have Tina's back. Hello, it's Tina. (laughs) (laughs) um and so um why don't we uh introduce each of each of the people in case you might have forgotten or maybe this is your first episode winnie can go first um introduce yourself how you got into the earth sciences maybe or maybe what's your favorite topic of the earth sciences what you study all right i can do that so hello this is winnie i'm a master's student at the university of toronto uh how did i get into geology pretty much by accident. I mean, it is a happy accident, but here I am accidentally. My favorite topic, aka what I study, um, what I research is petrology, which is the study of rocks. I hope that's not too broad or too specific. (laughs) Okay. Um, Catherine, you can go next. So I'm an undergrad student at the University of Toronto. I'm in my third year. Um, I'm studying geochemistry and how I got into earth sciences. So in my first year, um, I took two earth sciences classes, just like they were purely electives. I like never thought I would be in earth sciences. Um, and I ended up really loving them. Um, they were like my, my top two classes that I took in first year. Um, so then when it came down to choosing a program, I had declared earth sciences as one of my programs. Um, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, and I guess going along with what I'm studying, my favorite aspect in the earth sciences is geochemistry, both like environmental and also hard rock geochemistry. All right, cool. Um, and Tina, your turn. Uh, so I'm a fourth year undergrad in the geology program and how I got into it was uh, originally I was in bioinformatics and I took um, mineralogy for fun. And I was like, hey, this is way better than bioinformatics. So I just switched <laughs> over. Um, in terms of my interests, I'm currently doing an undergrad uh, thesis with Professor Worman on basically ocean carbon chemistry. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us were just like, we took mineralogy and or petrology and that was like, the hook that that caught a lot of us or jeg 100 or jeg 100 that was yeah, a that great one, course that one yeah. that thing that one was mine first year but yeah me too um okay so i'll explain uh the episode format for today for our special um we had one last year where sophia and i basically came up with some papers from Wasn't the previous the year before oh gosh covid yes you're right COVID, uh, what do you call it? Uh, memory time lapse. lapse. Yeah. Time, yeah, time dilation here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, back back before this this huge mess. Um, well, for 2019. 2019, wow. Um, 
uh, we basically took some papers. Each of us took some papers that we found really cool or insightful or influential for in the earth sciences. And we just gave a little summary and we talked about why we liked it. And so that's what we're going to do again this year. Uh, I will go first. The title of my paper is called Using Phylogenies to Detect a Major Extinction Event in the Oligocene of Africa. So what they did with this paper is they had a whole bunch of fossils in Duke's collection. This is out of Duke University. And so there was this extinction event. It's pretty big. It was it, It's not a mass extinction event, but about 30 million years ago, there was a huge drop in temperatures. And we can detect that using uh, isotopes, oxygen isotopes, and we can tell, you know, how much water suddenly became landlocked in glaciers. We can take a look at these uh, evidences that, uh, that have these global implications, but it's really hard to tell what happened to communities at regional levels. So we know that uh, that in Europe and in Asia, there were some pretty substantial uh, losses in biodiversity and animal populations. But, it, but there's evidences that uh, that wasn't the case in other places like in Africa. And so it seems like maybe this was more of a regional die-out, um, that, this, that this extreme cooling 30 million years ago didn't so much affect this maybe equatorial regions or whatever. So what happened was they looked at this huge collection of, of fossils. Um, they went through five different mammal groups, and, they, and these were all carnivores. And they um, studied the teeth of, of these uh, of the fossils to look at the diversity of teeth uh, amongst these carnivores. And what's really cool about that is the teeth of, of an animal really tells you a lot about its environment and what it was eating and what it was able to, to consume and the amount of food sources that was available. And so you see really, for instance, I th- I'm using this one mainly because this was like I, this one made the most sense to me. This this particular line of evidence that as the variety of types of teeth kind of coalesced into like one or two different types, that kind of shows you that the sources of food greatly diminished for these types of of animals in this region. And so, and it was a substantial reduction. And one of these species actually is one of our ancestral predecessors and so a really cool thing that i found about this was that we actually came really close to never existing just from this not even a mass extinction event um i think it's it estimated about like two-thirds now i believe they think of of all species died out in in this event 30 million years ago so it's it's still huge i guess they don't consider it a mass extinction but yeah so this this is the paper that i really thought was really cool but we don't get a lot of uh a talk about this this you know the other non-mass extinction events and this was the first evidence that this was actually a global event a global extinction event cool paper dean i have so many questions oh wow okay so you said that they looked at a huge collection of carnivore fossils Mm mm-hmm and how do they know that our 
um, I guess, ancestors were involved? Like, are we part of the carnivore group in uh, that sense? Yeah, we were actually one of the... Because one of them was the uh, anthropoids, uh, which is apes and monkeys, the predecessor to apes and monkeys modern day. Ah. So that that's basically that we were in that bottleneck of right. our predecessors were, were part of that bottleneck yeah right cool you know that big extinction event um that happened i i kind of forget when but that reminds me of this extinction event it's that event that happened where like 90 percent of species got extinct oh. there's a couple where it's like 90 but like there was one called like they call it the Great Dying, which is which happened like ninety five percent. I think it was worse for for ocean life, but yeah, there's a couple like that. There, there's five of them that we learn about in class. Yeah. Okay. So, anyone else have any other things they want to mention about this paper? Otherwise, we can move on to Winnie. Okay. Can no. Do her paper. So, why did you choose this paper? What did you like about it particularly? Uh. Well, I'm always looking at things about extinction because I just have a passion for climate change and biodiversity um, research lately. I, I mean, I don't really go into it much in depth myself, but I do love to read like the big hard hitting discoveries and papers that have to do with biodiversity because of the, the, the extinction, the sixth mass extinction people are calling today um, with the, the amount of biodiversity loss that we're seeing due to our own impacts. And so any kind of analogs to what's happening today, I get an immediate interest in. That's really cool. So you would say that this paper has some sort of impact to where we are today as a society? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, this was, this was caused by plummeting temperatures rather than increasingly like rising temperatures. But I mean, it's a, it's a shock to the, the system and a bottleneck in the tree of life. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. So what did you do your paper or which paper did you pick, Winnie? So I will be sharing a paper on the formation of um, hyper enrichment of gold. So the paper is titled Colloidal Transport and Fluctuation are the cause of the hyper enrichment of gold in nature. Um, a group of scientists at McGill University looked at the gold deposit at the Bruce Jack Mine in Northwest British Columbia. There's this long-standing paradox in ore deposit geochemistry about the formation of um, ultra-high-grade gold deposit, or so-called bonanza deposit. Um, and they're characterized as their name by this super high concentration of gold, typically in veins. And the paradox here is that the solubility and hence the concentration of gold in very hot fluids is, is it's supposed to be very low. So in order to get the concentration, the weight percent level concentration that we see in these deposits, you would need a huge amount of fluid to flow through them to deposit the amount of gold that we're seeing. Mm. So huge amount of fluid would need a huge amount of time to, to you know, process there and, and deposit and um, precipitate. Mm -hmm. But then on the contrary, these cracks, they typically uh, form and heal within hours, days, like matters of weeks. There is simply not enough time for a huge amount of fluid carrying dissolved gold 
to be forming the high-grade gold that we see in these veins. So that's what I understood the paradox is. So their insight and this research come from that they examine these um, samples with gold from these veins using what's known as the transmission electron microscope. Um, and that is, um, from what I understand, an extremely fine imaging tool that you can, it allows you to form image up to like 2 million times magnification. 2 million times. Hmm. That's mind-blowing. I cannot even fathom <laughs> how zoomed in 2 million times is. Yeah. But, it, but it really allows you to take a picture at a nanometer levels. So they did that. And they found, they found these um, little spherical particles of gold and, and more specific electron, which is an alloy of gold and silver. Mm. And so that tells them um, they think the gold maybe wasn't dissolved. It was carried in the fluid as colloids, which would allow the gold to be carried at a much higher concentration to deposit much, much faster. What's, what's a colloid? Um, Good question. A colloid, um, it's it's a suspension, so it's not dissolved, but it's small particles that's able to suspend in the fluid stably. Oh, yeah. So so you would require a sufficiently small grain size for it to not just settle. Like muddy water. Yeah, like simply. like like if you have clay and the clay is able to suspend in the water, that would be a colloid. Right. Um, but yeah, it's really I think a grain size definition. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. Um, so the researchers, they had a really smart analogy for this process. So the, the process of the gold forming from the colloid transport, um, depositing into these veins is really, really much like how milk goes sour. Milk is not a solution. Um, it is a suspension. It's a colloid suspension. And when it's in suspension, all of these particles of milk, I guess, fat and proteins and whatever, there are these little balls and they have surface negative charge. And these negative charges expel each other and allow them to stay suspended. Hmm. And when the milk goes sour, you lose this surface charge and things start to clump together because they no longer expel each other. So they start to clump together and they settle out. And that's how we get sour milk. Or cottage cheese. Or in this case, <laughs> super enriched goat veins. Very nice. Yeah. So, so that's... Basically, this story, they, they looked at some gold vein in extreme magnification and have this pretty cool hypothesis of how come we get these high-grade gold. I guess I really just like it for that smart analogy of sour milk. Um, I remember I was working in the summer when this paper came out and um, people were actually really cared about it because where I was working, the Red Lake Gold Deposit, they think it could be one of those scenarios. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So so that is what I'm sharing today. That's really interesting. So how many like gold deposit situations have this kind of paradox in them? Is this a very common paradox to find out in the field or So so these are a few examples. So we have one in Australia, the Ballarat deposit, and then there's the Sarah Pilata deposit in Brazil and the Red Lake in Ontario. And of course, the Bruce Jack mine is studied in British and British Columbia. So it's it's not as rare, I'm guessing. But mm -hmm. well, like Dan would know more about this, but maybe Catherine knows something. But when you're mining gold, the high grade is not the only thing you care about. Like it's nice, but you also want like a high tonnage. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I know that when you find gold, it's common to find like quartz veins near it. Um, like, d- do you know why that might be? Because I've I've always wondered. So so there are gold deposits hosted in quartz veins, and and there's specific types of deposit that you would find gold in quartz veins, um, like greenstone belt hosted stuff. Um, how I like to think about it is just like the gold has to be carried here somehow and it's most commonly fluid and whenever you have fluid you get quartz veins up and down okay so, so that's like that's how it makes sense in my brain okay but also just like quartz veins are just very common everywhere yeah, yeah so that's, that's true it's really hard to draw like a correlation yeah. between it's like gold. all over ontario and i guess yeah. Like, yeah. around it's the world like, yeah oh. we find golden rock yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of like that yeah I mean, like, there's more specific associations like quartz carbonate veins and, and quartz mm-hmm. tourmaline veins. But, yeah, I, I think there's a reason that they like to come in veins. That's because it has to be carried here by a fluid. Mm-hmm. Flashback to to Dan Gregory's episode. If you want to learn more about that, we talked about that. <laughs> Dig well, that there, there will be a link in the, in the dictionary <laughs> box. <laughs> All right, Catherine, you wanna you wanna go next? <laughs> yes, I would love to. So my paper is a little less sciencey than what was um, described by the previous two hosts. Um, so the the topic of mine is diversity, equity, and inclusion, tackling underrepresentation and recognition of talents in geochemistry and cosmochemistry. So specifically in this paper, um, the scientists analyze data from three main areas. So the first one is um, geochemistry conference attendees. Um, So they got data from the Goldschmidt conference and the Goldschmidt conference is this like huge international geochemistry conference and it's it's hosted by the Geological Society and also the European Geological Society. Um, And then the second um, group of people that um, they took data from was leadership and awardees data, and then as well as geochemistry society memberships data um, to to like assess diversity in geochemistry and cosmochemistry. So what they found was that over the past three years, um, from the Goldschmidt conference, around sixty percent of attendees were men, and then forty percent were women. The this conference, the the data that this conference had found also found that um, the amount of females in academia decreases the higher up you go, um, which is known as the leaky pipeline. So something that I found interesting, like one of the cool statistics that I found in this paper was that about like 9% of chemistry profs in the UK, um, they're female chemistry profs. So like 9% compared to 91% of male chemistry professors. Um, I thought that was like pretty interesting. And that's not really like a good representation of genders um, here. Regarding the leadership roles, this they're doing like a little bit better with the leadership roles. So around two thirds of um, people who have leadership roles in the geological society, as well as the European Geological Society are women, um, and then one third are men. So this data is collected from over a span of 2019 
2021, which is when the paper was um, published. Um, so I guess the main, like the main conclusion of this paper is that like women and also people of visible minorities are definitely underrepresented in geochemistry and cosmochemistry. And they also do have like recommendations of what we can do to, for the representation to be um, like more diverse. Um, so for example, when we're giving out awards, um, we can we can like re-alter the definition of how um, the awardees can be awarded um, to, to like catch a broader scope of people because for for these large awards it's it's usually targeted towards the dominant population so for example um if people from like scientists from europe and also north america um we have so much more um we have like more access to to like better facilities to to do research whereas um a scientist in a third world country say like somewhere in Asia or Africa, they don't have the same facilities that can accommodate them. Um, so I guess making things more accessible for these scientists would also help with diversity and inclusion in uh, geosciences and STEM in general. So that's my paper. Very nice. Did, did they talk about like, I wonder how um, virtual conferencing um would affect things like that if you don't have to travel from from all over the world to generally places that you know are are these societies that you said with or these university locations with all these instruments i wonder if like virtual conferencing could could help address some of that um inequity as well yeah i guess it does so they didn't really talk about virtual conferences but like if i were to guess um just from like reading this paper um and yeah, just from like reading this paper, I think that virtual conferences would um, make the the data collected more more diverse because like um, if if people were to like fly to wherever this this conference is is held um, from like year to year, like that that is potentially a an obstacle to overcome. Like like some some schools may not have the funding to send like a certain amount of scientists to the conference yeah i wonder um so so the number of specifically 58 percent men attendees at goldschmidt that's from just the past three years and i wonder really what it looks like because the conference been around for more, much longer than that like what it would look like 10 years ago if you were to walk into goldschmidt or even pdac yeah as a female yeah, it'd probably be like, like overly, overly dominated by, I guess, like right. white men and men in general. <laughs> and they they have like the highest positions of 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 authority and power in in the academia and in the industry, but also like you know the the people who come to these things are kind of like it's kind of like a mix of like who got to these positions thirty years ago and now they're you know tenured professors today versus who we're hiring today you know, how close are we to being pretty equitable in our hiring today? And it's kind of like, I would imagine like the people who are getting these awards are kind of like a mix of those two selection biases, you know, if, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, regarding the, the awards, they are, um, I know that some like award um, criterias, they are like changing. Um, and this is like pretty recent as well. They are changing to address um, like, like who gets awards and also the, for the award selection committee, they are making the committee more diverse um, in terms of including more visible minorities, including more females in the in these committees to um potentially like make the bias a little less biased towards white men who um historically have held like the most number of these prestigious awards um in stem and geochemistry as well yeah i think this is a very interesting a very important topic and it's way beyond the scope of the single paper or the experience of any individual. Mm-hmm. We may or may not have an episode in future dedicated just to the topic of diversity and inclusion. Yeah. When when Sophia and I were looking at this, we found that there's so little data on this too. It's it's really hard to put an, a, an episode together um, on this on this kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. there there's definitely more and more stuff coming out. Uh, that that give us material to talk about. So I, I definitely think we should. It's really cool that people are doing research on it and there's quantitative stuff and mm-hmm. it really shows the awareness growing. So yeah, stay tuned for that episode. Um, yeah, and I love it when we get meta on science too. I don't always like to talk about... What's meta? <laughs> like, just like, you know, talk, you talk, it's a science podcast, but then instead of talking about the science, you talk about science itself. You talk about the science of science. Yeah. Oh, you know? cool. <laughs> that's that's like meta perspective. <laughs> we're cutting that out, right? No, we're definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Tina, you ready to go? All right. Yes, sir. So the paper that I chose sort of goes back to more science rather than like the meta that we were just talking about. But the, the paper that I picked is called The Accidental Synthesis of a Previously Unknown Quasi-Crystal in the First Atomic Bomb Test. So just as some background information, uh, quasi-crystals are defined as structures that are ordered, but unlike crystals, they're not periodic, which just means like they have an unusual or forbidden symmetry and repetition in their structure. And they're first discovered in 1982 by Dan Shetman, who later won a Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2011 for his discovery. And since then, like material scientists were able to create these quasi-crystals in the lab, and they use them in things like nonstick frying pans, dental instruments, uh, surgery needles, etc. And in 2008, uh, Paul Steinhardt and Luca Bindi found the first naturally occurring quasi-crystal, and they called it the icosahedrite. And they found it in a mineral in Russia, and they believed it was formed from a collision between two asteroids 4.5 billion years ago. And this sort of led them to wonder, like, okay, if quasi-crystals can be formed under, like, high-pressure temperature shock collisions, why not atomic blasts? And so, basically, the paper that I was looking at, they found that after the explosion at the Trinity site in New Mexico where they detonated the first nuclear bomb in 1945, they found these quasi-crystals that contain like iron, silicon, copper, and calcium in a sample of red trinonite. 
which is basically a glass-like material that was created by the explosion. And what's cool about this is that it's basically the oldest known human-made quasi-crystal with a known origin. And they think that this could help in improve improving nuclear forensics and understanding things like how nuclear weapons were built, uh, what they're made of, where there might have been like secret testings that happened. Since these crystals are sort of like a sort um like a permanent signature that gets left behind by these explosions. And the reason I chose this article is because I thought it was just kind of crazy that it was only last year that we found that we accidentally created these quasi crystals way before we even knew they could exist. And it kind of just shows how there's just so much left to discover. Yeah, you never know the impacts of of your experiments either. I didn't actually know the definition of quasi-crystal until like this, um, until you just just explained it. Same. Um, I really like the take-home message. It's kind of like a little cautionary tale for for scientists, like discoveries are anywhere, like it doesn't have to be intentional. I think I was reading up on like more about quasi-crystals and apparently when Dan first found the first he created the first quasi-crystal like no one really believed him for a really long time (laughs) I feel like that's the like that's what happens when somebody comes up with like a new scientific idea because like regarding plate tectonics like nobody believed that plate tectonics like the theory behind that was a thing yeah, but I mean, like, tectonic theory was, like, a slow, build, a gradual build-up over time. Like, I can just picture Dan going to, like, quasi-crystals, and they'd just be like, bull, baloney. <laughs> you know? Like, that's such a more, like, hard, like, immediate, like, rejection. I don't know. But, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, So I guess this kind of uh, wraps up our papers. We uh, just should uh, say that we are excited for a new year of recording. Hope to... Hope that Toronto is kind of in a lockdown again. Yes, that's <laughs> definitely a great motivation to to do some more recordings. Um, more excuses to talk with some professors, maybe some not from University of Toronto, maybe some personalities who we would like to meet or get in touch with. That'd be really cool. Um, it's a great chance to talk with people you'd never normally get to talk with. So we're going to try and make some pretty cool things happen this year. And if you're a professor listening to this, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to host you. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, I guess we will close the episode now. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. We hope to have you tune in again next time for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Thank you. Bye. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.